Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, our text this morning is John 3, 9 through 15. We're picking up in the middle of this story about Jesus' interaction with a man named Nicodemus. And so let's begin by reading those verses together, 9 through 15, chapter 3, and then we will study them together. John 3, verse 9, this is the word of the Lord. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. Christians believe from the Bible that all human beings are sinners, that their sin has left them guilty, before the holy God who created them, and that the just punishment for their sins is eternal destruction in hell. Paul famously described this in his letter to the Romans, saying, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Christians also believe from the Bible that sinners are saved by faith. It's not that faith is a virtuous act that God rewards with salvation, but faith is the means by which we receive the gift of salvation from God. It's like the empty hand of a beggar. As Paul put it in Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved through faith. Finally, Christians believe in the Bible that the salvation which sinners receive from God comes through Jesus Christ, so that he is the object of our faith. Thus, Christians say, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of those who believe in him. As Paul told the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. However, for these truths to be properly understood, one further question must be answered. What is saving faith? What does it mean for a sinner to believe in Jesus Christ such that they receive from him the gift of salvation? Is it simply an intellectual thing? Or is it also a decision of the will? And is there something else involved as well? These are important questions, and getting the answers wrong has actually led to a lot of confusion in the church. I want to suggest that the text that we've come to this morning in John's Gospel is meant to shed some light on that subject. Now, we're picking up in the middle of a story in John 3, so let's remember what this story is about. After kicking off, as it were, his public ministry with that first miracle 
at Cana in Galilee at a wedding. You remember Jesus then traveled for the Passover feast up to the capital city of Jerusalem. And upon arriving there, he began to make quite a stir in the city by clearing out the money changers and merchants from the temple courts and then beginning to teach and to perform miraculous signs. And as a result, many people were beginning to believe in him and even many of the religious leaders were taking notice of him. One of these was a man named Nicodemus who was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, we're told at the beginning of chapter 3. That is, he was one of the 70 men who sat on the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. Now, while he was not willing to throw his public support behind Jesus, Nicodemus decided to pay him a visit at night. He told Jesus that he and many of his Fellow Pharisees, it seems, were convinced that Jesus' teaching must be from God because of the miracles he was doing. But it was obvious that Nicodemus didn't fully understand who Jesus was or what he was all about. He called Jesus rabbi, but he certainly wasn't ready to call him Christ. Jesus, for his part, was not impressed or flattered by Nicodemus' visit. Rather, he set to work to help Nicodemus see how little he really understood, even though he was supposed to be an expert in the scripture. Specifically, he told Nicodemus that being born again of the Spirit was necessary to see and enter the kingdom of God. In other words, only those who were given new spiritual life by the Holy Spirit would be able to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and be received into his kingdom. That brings us to John 3, 9, where we pick up the story this morning. Now in verse 9, we see Nicodemus responded to Jesus' teaching about this necessity of being born of the Spirit to enter the kingdom, and he said this, how can these things be? Notice, Nicodemus didn't say, what do these things mean? He said, how can these things be? In other words, at this point, it wasn't that Nicodemus didn't understand what Jesus was saying but that he didn't understand how it could be true. How could it be true that only those who were born again of the Spirit could see and enter the promised kingdom of the Messiah? That idea had no place in Nicodemus's thinking, was foreign to his understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. D.A. Carson has a helpful explanation here. He says, doubtless Nicodemus himself had for years taught others the conditions of entrance to the kingdom of God. Conditions cast in terms of obedience to God's commands, devotion to God, happy submission to his will. But here he is facing a condition he has never heard expressed. The absolute requirement of birth from above. Even after Jesus' explanation, he is frankly skeptical 
that such a birth can take place, end quote. In verse 10, we see how Jesus responded. And there it says, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? As many scholars have pointed out, it's significant that Jesus didn't just call Nicodemus a teacher of Israel, but the teacher of Israel, using the definite article there. It probably indicated that Nicodemus was a sort of recognized master teacher in the nation. If he was one of Israel's most prominent rabbis, that would certainly explain how he was one of a small number of non-priests that were selected to sit on the Jewish ruling council. And yet, it was precisely because Nicodemus was regarded as one of the most prominent teachers in Israel, a top expert in the law, if you will, that Jesus rebuked him here for his incredulity about the need for the new birth. As a recognized authority of the Old Testament scriptures, Nicodemus should have understood why people need to be born again of the Spirit in order to see and enter the kingdom of God. I explained last week why this was the case. But let me just reiterate for you some of that explanation now. The Spirit of God is described throughout the Old Testament as creating, reviving, renewing, transforming, empowering. This is the work of the Spirit. Again and again, we see him working within the hearts of of people, giving them wisdom, giving them strength of character to serve God in various ways. And the prophet Isaiah had repeatedly predicted that the Messiah would be anointed by the Holy Spirit to carry out his ministry of salvation on the one hand and judgment on the other. The prophets also predicted that when the Messiah arrived to redeem the people of God, that redemption would include God pouring out the Spirit upon the people of God. And one of the things that the Spirit would do when he was poured out on God's people is he would give them new spiritual life. He would transform their hearts so that they might repent of their sins, so that they might walk in the commands of God. This is particularly evident, as I mentioned, in the oracles of Ezekiel that are recorded in Ezekiel 36 and 37. In chapter 37, the prophet looked at the present condition of the nation of Israel, the old covenant people of God, and he described them using the image of a valley of very dry skeletons. And then he predicted that in the last days, when, in other words, the Messiah would arrive, The Lord would raise them to spiritual life again through the proclamation of the word and by the power of his Holy Spirit. If you go back a chapter in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel described the way that the Lord would change the hearts of the people in that day. Again, by the power of the Spirit. We read these words in verses 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh 
And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, even a superficial reading of the history of Israel recorded in the Old Testament makes it quite clear that that very type of inner cleansing and renewal of heart by the Spirit of God, what Jesus called being born again or born of the Spirit, was exactly what Israel and all humanity so desperately has needed. And this, you see, is why Jesus said to Nicodemus in verse 10 of our text, Are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not understand these things? Given his vast knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, Nicodemus should not have balked when Jesus said, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Of course that was true. The entire history of Israel pointed to it. The oracles of the prophets explicitly described it. Nicodemus really should have known better. But he was spiritually blind and deceived. He belonged to a party, the Pharisees, whom Jesus would later call blind guides, who strained out gnats and swallowed camels, Jesus said, because they were meticulous about their religious traditions, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law, things such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. He also described the Pharisees as hypocrites and whitewashed tombs because they were clean on the outside but full of uncleanness on the inside because while they were scrupulous about their outward behavior, their hearts were full of greed and self-indulgence. In other words, the Pharisees, men like Nicodemus, trusted in their own religious and moral activity to get them into the kingdom of God and were oblivious to the fact that they were spiritually dead and they needed to be born again of the Spirit. Of course, that problem isn't limited to the Pharisees, like Nicodemus, is it? It's common to humanity. And we can be blind to it, especially if we are proud of our moral and religious behavior. Well, after rebuking Nicodemus for his incredulity, Jesus went on to say to him in verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now, you might even remember that when Nicodemus first addressed Jesus in this nighttime visit, he had spoken to Jesus in the first person plural. He had said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, in doing that, Nicodemus had indicated that he was speaking not only for himself, but also representing the views of others who agreed with him, probably some of his fellow Pharisees. Now we see in verse 11 that perhaps even mimicking Nicodemus' way of addressing him, Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in the first person plural, and he said, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now this question that has befuddled scholars is, who is Jesus referring to when he said we and our? It was very unusual for him to ever speak in the first person plural like this. 
Jesus and his disciples, perhaps. Jesus and John the Baptist, some have thought. Jesus and his father, perhaps. It seems to me that just as Nicodemus had probably been referring to himself and his fellow Pharisees, Jesus may have been referring to himself and his disciples. And that the point that Jesus was making is that while Nicodemus and his fellow Pharisees were misguided about the Old Testament, and therefore that's why they were unbelieving, incredulous about Jesus' teaching, Jesus and those who were with him, who believed in him, spoke the truth based upon first-hand testimony. But while Jesus said we and our, probably referring to himself and his disciples, yet the primary reference must be himself. Because when he said, we speak of what we know and bear witness about what we have seen, well, he was surely referring to his own unique access to the truth. In other words, he's telling Nicodemus, we know what we're talking about. Because I have first-hand knowledge of the truth. We bear witness about what we have seen. And yet you and your fellow Pharisees don't believe what I'm saying. You really need to rethink what you're doing, Nicodemus. Then to humble Nicodemus further, Jesus went on to say to him, verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus here is using a classic lesser to greater argument. The argument goes like this. If you can't accept things that are easier to believe when I tell you about them, namely earthly things, how will you be able to accept things that are harder to believe when I tell you about them? Heavenly things. In other words, if you can't do the lesser thing, Nicodemus, how will you do the greater thing? Now, the question, of course, that's ringing in your mind is, what did Jesus mean by earthly things and heavenly things? Well, the earthly things, he says, are things that he'd already told Nicodemus, which he hadn't believed. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. So they must refer, it seems to me, to what Jesus had just told Nicodemus about the need to be born again of the Spirit, to enter the kingdom. Why did Jesus, though, call that earthly things? Well, perhaps because they take place here and now upon the earth. But then, what were the heavenly things that Jesus mentions? Well, the answer is, I just don't think we can be entirely sure. It may be the the very things he's about to go on to talk about. All we know is that they must refer to things that are more difficult for Nicodemus to believe than the need for the new birth. Perhaps what Jesus meant is that the new birth would be easier for Nicodemus to believe because, like, you can see the effects of the wind. Well, so you could observe the effects of the new birth in people's lives right here on earth before your eyes, whereas there were things which Jesus would reveal about God, about his kingdom, about his plans for the future that you couldn't see with your eyes because they're not taking place here on earth right now. They were heavenly things in that sense. 
And Jesus' point to Nicodemus is that if he couldn't believe what Jesus said about the new birth, the effects of which you could actually observe with your eyes, because it took place right here on earth, then how would he possibly accept the truth about things which pertain to heaven, which were invisible to the eyes? It was a way of communicating to Nicodemus, one of the most prominent teachers in Israel, how blind and hard his heart truly was. Nicodemus needed to see his own need for the Holy Spirit to revive and renew his own heart so that he might be able to believe in Jesus as the Christ and begin to trust that he was teaching truth for he spoke of what he knew and bore witness to what he had seen. But that does lead to another question. How could Jesus claim this kind of special access to the truth? Right? How was he able to reveal both Earthly and heavenly things to Nicodemus. What did he mean when he said in verse 11, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen? It seems as if Jesus is claiming to have firsthand knowledge of things that he was talking about. It's as if he's claiming to have access to God's knowledge. Knowledge of heavenly things, which you can't see with your eyes. How could he say this? What could he mean? Well, he seems to give the answer in the next verse, verse 13. He went on to say to Nicodemus, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now this verse is somewhat difficult to interpret. At first glance, it seems as if, it comes across even in your English translation, seems as if Jesus is claiming to be the only man who has ascended into heaven and then descended uh, from heaven. But that would be confusing because Jesus hadn't ascended into heaven at that point. He would, but he hadn't yet. And I actually don't think that is what he's saying. Rather, scholars have pointed out that the Greek can be read in a different way and perhaps better understood this way, that first he's saying... No one has ascended into heaven. And then he introduces a new category of people that he went on to include himself in as the only one. That is, he alone had descended from heaven. So you see, no one had ascended into heaven, so they couldn't speak firsthand about heavenly things, but he alone had descended from heaven Why? Because he was the son of man, which was a messianic title. It goes back to Daniel chapter 7, 13, where Daniel says, I saw one like the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he could speak with firsthand knowledge about both earthly and heavenly things, because as the son of man, the Messiah, he had actually been in heaven before descending, before coming down and entering this world as a man. And you think, wow. (laughs) I mean, if Nicodemus thought that Jesus' teaching about the new birth was hard to believe, what must he have thought about this claim? And you know, I think that's sort of the point, isn't it? 
It's as if Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you got a lot to learn, buddy. Most importantly, you have to come to grips with who I am. You say my teaching must be from God because of the signs I have been performing. That's not even close to the full truth about me. I am the Son of Man, whom Daniel foresaw, who has come down from heaven. The things that I'm saying I know to be true from unique first-hand knowledge. Perhaps some of you here need to come to grips with who Jesus really is. Perhaps you are balking at these things in your heart and you might be thinking, can that really be what Jesus means here? That he spoke with first-hand knowledge about heavenly things because he has descended out of heaven? Come on, that's a little over the top. That can't be what he means. No, actually, that is what he means. How do I know that? Because it doesn't just say it here. I mean, he says these kinds of things many times in the book. I think of just a couple examples. John 6, 38, Jesus is recorded as saying, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse chapter 17, verse 5, perhaps even more remarkably, he says, and now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's clearly the author's view of Jesus. John, this disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who lived with Jesus for three years, described him in the prologue in chapter one as the word who was with God in the beginning, who was himself God and then became flesh and dwelt among us. And it's not just John. It's not even just Jesus' own claims about himself. The Apostle Paul said similar things. Famously, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, said of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. See, it's the clear teaching of the New Testament that the man, Jesus, We sang about him, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. That he existed before his birth and earthly life as the divine son of God in heaven. So Jesus alone of all humanity could legitimately say, I have come down from heaven. And that is why he alone could claim to have First-hand knowledge of the heavenly things that he talked about. Finally, after claiming to have first-hand knowledge of heavenly things because he had descended from heaven, it's as if Jesus began expounding on some of these heavenly things so that Nicodemus could hear in the rest of the chapter. It's as if to show Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, how little he really understood about what the Old Testament was really getting at. Jesus began by taking a famous story out of the Old Testament and showing Nicodemus how it pointed to him as the Christ. Look again there at verses 14 and 15. There Jesus said this, and As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, if you 
weren't familiar with the Old Testament, you'd think, what in the world is he talking about? But he's referring here to a story recorded in the book of Numbers. Yes, that book that all the pages are white, maybe still stuck together. Numbers 24, verses 4 through 9. And because it's only six verses, we might as well read it here, but just to remind you of the background, after the Exodus, Israel rebelled against God in Numbers 13 and 14. They refused to enter the promised land, and so God condemned them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire rebellious generation was dead. And during this wandering period, they often grumbled against Moses because of the hardships of the desert. And they expressed their desire to go back to Egypt, where they had once lived as slaves. And this story in Numbers 24, 4 through 9, is just one such incident, which took place toward the end of the 40-year wilderness wandering period. It says this, quote, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now Jesus understood this story recorded in Numbers 21 as providing a prefiguring, pointing forward to his own saving work as the Messiah. So he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Moses lifted up the bronze serpent on a pole, so in the same way, he, the Son of Man, the Messiah, would be lifted up, that is, on a cross. Jesus, by the way, would use this phrase, lift it up, two other times in the gospel. Both times it refers to his crucifixion. So we know that's what he's referring to here. Also, just as the bronze serpent lifted up on the pole, it represented the punishment that Israel was receiving for their sins, fiery serpents. So also, when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he would become a curse for us, as Paul put it in Galatians 3.13. In other words, he on the pole would bear the just punishment that we deserve for our violation of God's righteous commands. And finally, as every Israelite who looked at the bronze serpent lifted up on the pole was saved from physical death, Well, so everyone who believes in Jesus lifted up on the cross as a sacrifice for sin will be saved from judgment and have eternal life. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life, he says. Just as the Israelites trusted Moses' words 
that this bronze serpent was the source of salvation from death that God was providing them, so we must trust the words of the gospel that the death of Jesus on the cross is the source of salvation from eternal destruction for our sins, which God has graciously provided us. After his incredulous question in verse 10, how can these things be? Nicodemus isn't heard from again in John 3. As one commentator put it, the dialogue became a monologue starting in verse 11. And you wonder if Nicodemus's mouth was literally shut as he began to realize that he had gotten far more than he bargained for in this meeting with Jesus. I mean, no doubt, he left with a lot to think about that night. And it seems that unlike so many of his fellow Pharisees, this great rabbi and ruler in Israel gradually began to move from a superficial faith in Jesus to a true saving faith in him over the next three years. You know, his name pops up two more times in the gospel. Once in chapter 7, verses 50 through 52, we see him defending Jesus before the Sanhedrin. And then later, in chapter 19, verse 39, John tells us that Nicodemus, the one who the first time around came to Jesus at night, not wanting to publicly identify with him, came one more time when Joseph of Arimathea was burying the body of Jesus and publicly honored him by bringing him a vast quantity of costly perfume to anoint his body with. It was at that point, it seems, that this prominent man came to finally make his honor of and trust in Jesus public, for the first time on record at least. Let's reflect as we close about what we can learn from this passage of Scripture. In particular, I want to highlight what it teaches us about the nature of true saving faith. There's a sense in which faith is right at the heart of this entire story of Jesus' interchange with Nicodemus. And it really goes back to verses 23 through 25 of chapter 2, which introduced this story. There it says, Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But on his part, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. So in other words, there were some in Jerusalem who had come to believe that Jesus was from God in some way on account of his miracles that he was doing there. But Jesus didn't take them as his disciples. He didn't entrust himself to them because he knew their faith wasn't sufficient. It wasn't saving faith. And then John introduces us to Nicodemus as if here is an example of the kind of person who had this insufficient faith. And the first thing we see about true saving faith from the story of Nicodemus is that it must begin with understanding. You know, saving faith can't be reduced to intellectual knowledge, but it has to begin there. One cannot believe in something that they do not understand. Nicodemus' faith 
was insufficient because at first he really didn't understand who Jesus was. Oh, he knew he was from God because of his miracles, but that's about it. He didn't understand that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament, who had come down from heaven to reveal truth from God out of his own firsthand knowledge and to save those who believed in him as he was lifted up upon the cross for their sins. And this lack of understanding on Nicodemus's part, it's, it's one of the things that Jesus worked in this conversation to remedy. And this truth that saving faith begins with understanding, it's critical for us as Christians to grasp because it highlights the importance of proclaiming and teaching the objective truths that we have contained in the Bible because without them, no one can be saved. You remember what Paul said in Romans 10, 17? So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. If we are not openly proclaiming the truths of Scripture and explaining what they mean, especially the gospel message itself, so that they can be heard and understood by people listening, then faith is impossible. Non-Christians cannot believe the gospel so as to be saved, and Christians cannot grow in their faith so as to mature spiritually if they don't hear and understand the word of God. And we have to point out that it's become very common in evangelical churches, too many of them at least, not to proclaim and teach the actual content of the Bible very much at all. In too many churches, people can sit in service after service and not even hear the basic elements of the gospel message articulated, let alone the doctrines of Scripture unpacked. R.C. Sproul, of course, lamented this during his lifetime and and sought to remedy it through his teaching. He, He would often say, there is a famine of the word in the churches. May God graciously strengthen us to see the need for this and to be faithful to do it. So, we're reminded from this story of Nicodemus that true saving faith must begin with understanding the truth of God's word. But that certainly isn't enough, is it? Any faith which stops at mere understanding is still woefully insufficient to save. And this leads us to the second thing that we see about true saving faith from the story of Nicodemus, and that is it also includes acceptance. Not only does saving faith understand the truths of God's word, it must accept them as true. And this matter emerges really in verse 9 of our text, doesn't it? After Jesus explained the, the new birth, the need for the new birth to Nicodemus, we see that he responded by saying, how can these things be? And Jesus rebuked him in verse 10 for not understanding how what he had said could be true. He went on to tell Nicodemus that being an expert in the Old Testament, he should not have found it so difficult to accept the necessity of being born again of the Spirit because it was clearly taught in the Scripture. But it was very difficult for Nicodemus to swallow, wasn't it? Because it went against his own understanding of the Scriptures, an understanding that was rooted in a long tradition of rabbinical teaching. Not only that, but it also would mean that he was missing something. 
and his fellow Pharisees were missing something, something that would exclude them from the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus was another reason why his faith was insufficient. And in order to be saved, he must not only understand what Jesus is teaching, but he must accept it as true. As I pointed out at the end of my exposition, the other references to Nicodemus in John's gospel indicate that eventually he did come to accept Jesus' teaching as true. Now, this fact that saving faith involves both understanding and acceptance of the word of God, it's also important for us to understand, isn't it? It reminds us as Christians that we must choose to believe not only the gospel message itself, but also everything else which God has taught us in the scriptures, his word. We can't just look at the Bible. All scripture is breathed out by God and choose to believe some of it and not others. And be careful. There are lots of clever ways that we can devise to reject parts of God's word without admitting that we're actually doing that. For instance, we might use sort of creative interpretations in order to conclude that a passage of Scripture turns out wasn't actually teaching what it clearly is teaching. We simply might ignore certain parts of the Bible, never reading them, never teaching them, so that we don't have to deal with them. Some even have the audacity to say, well, certain parts of the Bible are just no longer relevant to us. Famously, recently, we heard that you can just unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. Still others declare that only certain parts of the Bible are inspired and inerrant, and those that aren't can be safely discarded. And conveniently, we get to choose which those are. As Christians, you see, we have to recognize that whenever we find ourselves struggling to accept the word of God as true, the problem is with our finite and corrupted hearts, not God's word, which is holy, just, and true. And knowing That saving faith involves both understanding and acceptance. The church has to be faithful and bold, not only to proclaim God's word, but to call people to believe it is true. This is what Jesus did with Nicodemus in our text. His whole point in verses 11 and 12 was to establish the credibility of his word as the Messiah who had come from God to rebuke Nicodemus and his fellow Pharisees for not receiving his testimony. So also, when we proclaim the gospel, we have to declare it to be a message from God through the Son, by the Spirit, and call people to accept it as true. We must call people to accept the gospel as true. And the same thing must be done with all the scriptures for us as Christians in the church. You see, brothers and sisters, we must never be ashamed of what the Bible says. Have you ever found yourself doing that? Yeah, I know, I don't like it, but it's what it says. I don't like it. Teach the whole counsel of God to the assembly of God's people. Call them to believe and accept every word of it. Now we're reminded from this story of Nicodemus then that true saving faith, it begins with understanding of God's word and accepting it as true. But even that's not enough. Any faith which stops with an understanding and assent 
to God's word is still insufficient to save. And that brings us to the final part of this story about Nicodemus, in which we see, third of all, that true saving faith also involves trust. You know, Nicodemus, he entered into this nighttime conversation with Jesus, thinking he needed to find out more about Jesus so that he could determine whether or not to you know, affirm him or believe in him. But Jesus knew that Nicodemus needed a whole lot more than that. And in the end, Nicodemus needed, Jesus knew, to put his trust in Jesus for salvation from God's judgment and to give him eternal life in his kingdom. And that's why I think Jesus referred to the story from Numbers 24, 21, 4 through 9. It provided this perfect picture of Nicodemus' desperate situation before God and what it meant to trust in God for salvation. It meant not just understanding that Jesus was the Messiah who had come to die for their sins and affirming that it was true. Imagine if the Israelites heard Moses say that the snake was your source of salvation and they said, yep, that's true. But they never actually looked at it. You see, this story teaches us that saving faith meant relying wholly upon the death of our Lord lifted up on the cross as the only source of deliverance from judgment that God has provided. See, when Jesus said to Nicodemus, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And he said that against the background of Numbers 21, believing in him meant trusting in him, casting yourself upon him, looking to him for salvation. And this too is important for us to understand. You know, some of you might be sitting in this room thinking you are a Christian because you have affirmed a set of truths about Jesus. Maybe you heard them growing up in church. But you've never personally trusted in Jesus to save you from the punishment you deserve for your sin. You've never been convicted that you are a sinner. You've never felt the peril of your soul as a result of that. You've never cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ, crying out to him to save you, relying upon him to keep his promise in the gospel. Like the Israelites looking to the bronze serpent for healing from the deadly poison in their veins. Children, you know, when you go to a friend's house and your parents say, okay, we'll pick you up tomorrow morning. Well, the next morning you pack up your stuff and you set it by the door and you wait for your parents to arrive. Why? Because you trust them to do what they've said. Well, so also with Christ. You hear him say to you in the gospel, I have been lifted up on the cross as a sacrifice for sin so that whoever believes in me might not perish but have eternal life. And you cry out to him and you say, save me. And you trust in his death to rescue you from your sins. And you believe he's going to save you according to his promise. So if you've not done that already, I just call you to believe that good news and put your trust personally in Jesus for salvation. This is a perfect morning to do it. And believers, this truth about saving faith, it reminds us that when we share the gospel with others, we must not only tell them the gospel message, like, there, I got it out. 
and then call them to believe it is true. Well, that's good. You should do that. But you also must point them then to the person of Jesus, risen and reigning at the right hand of God, victorious over sin and death, and urge them, according to the promise of the gospel, to put their trust in him to save them from their sins. You can't leave that part out. We're not simply trying to impart information or convince people that it's true. We are, in the end, calling them to respond to that truth. Jesus, lifted up on the cross, become a curse for us, to save us from eternal destruction that we deserve for our sins. Well, in conclusion, a fundamental truth of Christianity We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But what is that saving faith? Well, this morning we've seen the answer in the rest of Jesus' interchange with Nicodemus. It involves understanding the gospel, accepting it as true, trusting in the person that it reveals. A kind of faith which is less than that. The kind of faith which Nicodemus had when he first approached Jesus that faithful night is insufficient to save. May God grant us all this faith. May we live by it throughout our lives. Let's pray together. And as I'm praying, if the men who are going to be serving the Lord's Supper could come up here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message of the good news that in some way you have communicated to us at some point in our life and for the work of the Holy Spirit to give us new spiritual life, eyes to see and ears to hear, so that that message sunk into our hearts and convicted us of our sin and drew us out to cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ. We thank you for that. We thank you that you've saved us out of your free grace by the power of your Spirit through simple faith, an empty hand, receiving a gift of salvation, secured through your Son. We pray that you would now, as we think of the death of Christ for our sins, displayed in this holy meal, and as we partake of the bread and the cup, and we eat and drink, that we would be reminded of our share in the saving work of Christ that it would be a time of fellowship with Christ, communion with him and communion with one another by the Spirit. Grow us through this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.